0: Uh, no Jewish Norwegian woman nor any child survived the, fir- the first selection in Auschwitz. So there are no, no one in Norway to tell the story from a female perspective, from a Norwegian female perspective, since all of them were sent directly to the gas channel. <laughs> Let me. I now address the comparison with Denmark, and what I'm going to say is not complete. The research on this is not ended, but. Let me say that it, it, it's very easy to think that the situation in Norway-Denmark is more or less the same. Since the war started the same day, the 9th of April, 1940, and uh, the same kind of demands were given over to the, the persons in charge in Norway and it happened at the same hour quarter past four in the morning, 20 minutes past four in the morning. So it it looks very the same. However, the situation is very different. And I'm going to make five points. The first I will make is the obvious. Uh, It's the the geography.
1: Uh,
0: uh, Denmark, with a uh, border to Sweden, and Ulrich uh, said yesterday it was an experiment. Norway was, as we see it, the main option for Germany. It has a border to Russia, and especially northern Norway was the main object, border to Russia, and then uh, the town of Narvik, with the mine, the mine ta- mining industry of Narvik was very important, and the long coastal line facing Britain. As in uh, uh, Denmark, the kind of closeness or not willing to go to war with Germany had been a kind of underlying uh, issue. In Norway, it was not going to war with Britain. So it was a kind of a tradition with uh, long uh, relationships with Britain, but not that much with uh, um, Germany. That is point one. Uh, the second is, uh, the occupation regimes were very different. The German involvement in the two countries were very different, as has been pointed out by some. Gestapo came in in Norway from day one, while Gestapo in Denmark came in just in 43 in connection with the, the roundout of the Jews. And the whole administration, were, or the, the administration, governmental administration, was massified in Norway as the police. It was a state police, massified. And for instance, the Jews in Norway, they were arrested by Norwegian police, meaning the state police. And it's interesting that the Germans didn't... Uh, bother to arrest the Jews, the Gestapo. The Gestapo arrested the other Norwegians, but not the Jews, because it wasn't necessary, they could use other Norwegians uh, to arrest the Jews. And this was different from the other groups, from uh, the students, from the teachers and so on. And, um, so, so the administration was massified, um, and the third point is, of course, as you know, Quisling. Quisling had been a defense minister in, in uh, the beginning of the 30s in the Farmers' Party. And he tried to take over the government in, uh, when the war started. But he came into the sea, even though he didn't succeed. He was there, and he had his Nazi party. And when he succeeded and in um, beginning of 42, fe- February 42, He took over and he took over the the castle. He had his office in the castle He took things from the castle to Villa Grande de is the Holocaust center, and he should have known that we today have a Holocaust center in his uh, estate. Anyway, but he he was an important figure um, in this period. And the fourth, which is extremely important, is we are talking now about the fall of 42. While the Danish actions was a year later, and a year later is not only three hundred and sixty-five days; it's a lot of knowledge, it's a lot of. And the war, had his, its peak and was more or less peeping, understanding that it will not continue like that; they will not win the war, and so on and so forth. So that is extremely important that it happened in forty-two and not in forty-three. And then the, the fifth point is that the resistance in Norway was very different. Um, the resistance movements as such did not take any action to rescue the Jews, when well, that was the case in Denmark. But it was persons in the resistance who did things in order to rescue the Jews, so the resistance was involved the civil resistance, not the military resistance. And The reason for this uh, had to do with the Jews being a small number, having come to the country rather late, and so on and so course, I can come into that uh, in the questions. So now I will leave this very brief uh, and superficial in a way uh, comparison with, with Denmark, and I will say very quickly the headlines of the war when it comes to the Jews in Norway, for you to understand. In the beginning, there were arrests of Jews and non-Jews. They were sent to Grini, which was the prison, and they came out. So, it was not that much difference between the Jews and the others. Uh, the radios were taken from the Jews first, but then other Norwegians had to give in the radios afterwards. So, the thing, you have to think not only in context, as I was pointed out yesterday, but also in process. Things change little by little, and you get used to it. So if this is what is going to happen, I can live with it. If I'm going to prison for three months, I can live with it. I come out. Things like that was the attitude. And those of the Jews, except for arbitrary, that were arrested were those who had written in newspapers and had made them own, made them visible through their opinions negative to N.S. They were arrested. The others, if they were just quiet. Nothing would happen. Everyday life went on. It's important to remember. There were two group arrests. How is my time now? Fine, very yeah. good. There were two group arrests. We call them today group arrests, but at the time when they happened, they were not seen as group arrests. The first was in connection with the invasion of the Soviet Union, 18th of June 1941. Uh, All the male Jews of Northern Norway were arrested and sent to camps. But not only them, also 300 other Norwegians were arrested and sent to camps. The thing is that afterwards we can see that the other Norwegians, they were released while the Jews went from camps in Norway to camps in Norway and ended in Auschwitz. The second uh, group arrest, which is also not often called a group arrest I do. It It was in August September42. Uh, the Jews like to have a summer vacation in Nashness, summer small village, more or less like the one we visited yesterday. Um, and there they made one of the Jews had to sign a petition that he had done illegal work. It was not true, but they forced him. And then they arrested 11 male Jews. And they were not arrested in the ordinary way. They were called to come to Oslo to show up in the Gestapo's headquarters every day. And one of them was the rabbi of Oslo, Rabbi Samuel. And since they slept at home, went to the Gestapo's head office, people told them that you can escape to the rabbi. Why don't you escape? And he said, what will happen with my congregation? Because you knew that if a Jew did something that was not acceptable from the the Gestapo's view, then there will be, do you say repercussions? repercussions? Repercussions, yes. And also these eleven men, they decided to keep together. The second of September, 1941, um, they were when they came to show up at a, uh, Victoria Tarasse, the Victoria Terrace Gestapo headquarters, <coughs> they were all arrested and sent to Auschwitz soon after in a special transport. Okay, so uh, what happened until we are come now? Until October 26th of October, 1942. In a way you can say that everything in Norway happened within one month, between the 26th of October and 26th of November. So until then it, it the, the Germans had a reason you had done this and this illegal, jail, and so on, and camp. But until then, but then they changed the law. Two days before the twenty-sixth of October nineteen forty-two, they changed the law. And made three points. All men uh, more than 15 years old are to be, Jewish men more than 15 years old are to be arrested. All women, Jewish women, have to show up in the nearest police station every day to report, and all Jewish property will be confiscated. And that means uh, the bank accounts, the insurance, property, also other type of property. So then uh, it was not because you had so-called done anything, it only was because you were a Jew. Um, and this was the 26th of October. Men went into hiding, or they were arrested, and sent to a camp in Norway called Bergberg. But suddenly, some days later, the 9th of November, they released all men more than 65. And they thought, oh, the Germans are human. What is this? (coughs) But it was just that they didn't think that men more than 65 could get children. So uh, it was a way to keep their ideology and to do this. Perhaps, or perhaps it was a mistake, I don't know. But then, Exactly one month later, the 26th of uh, November, they changed the law again and included now in the arrest order all women and children were to be arrested. That was 26th of November. A lot of Jews escaped during this month, including my parents and my mother was pregnant with me in seventh month. and or they went into hiding, or they were arrested. Uh, many have asked, uh, why did not more people uh, escape, like the women? When the men were taken, they, people said they had to understand that the women will be the next. Well, it's difficult to foresee what happened during the war. But anyway, what did the women do when the men were arrested? What does a woman do when her son her father or husband is arrested. You don't take your pickpocket pack and you go away. The thing you do is you try to convince or to bribe the guards of the camp to give food, clothes, and medicines to those men in the camp. The camp was close to Oslo, 100 kilometers. So for the women, they didn't think of just disappearing, they were there also in the case of the men. And of course, they didn't know what the result will be. So, what we know now is that it was, uh, as I said, everyone were were arrested. It was, uh, there were four transports from Norway. Uh, And they were, and all transports (coughs) were shipped. And according to my knowledge, it's the only, from the only country where they come to Auschwitz with, ship, I mean they come to Stettin, with ship and then with the, the kettles, with the trains. There were uh, the tra- two ships, yes, two ships with Monterosa, uh, 9th of uh, November and 26th of November, and 26th of November was the biggest transport with Donar, as most of you know, 532 Jews in that transport, and then it was a transport in the beginning 25th of February 1943 Wotendag. Um, I will just now end and I will just say a little bit of the what I have written in this book is actually not what I said now. It is about, I have organized the, res, the escapes according to four categories you can say. So I shift a little bit again. I say that um, how did the Jews escape? Uh, some did not did escape by themselves. They didn't have any help, uh, They didn't have money, they didn't have contact. And they just arranged escape to, towards Sweden uh, by themselves. And about money I just want to point out what was said by Lanne Bark. So, back yesterday, uh, when the Norwegians had to pay for their trips, they paid to the, to the resistance movement they didn 't pay to individuals, so uh, that was very different and they paid it was according to how much they had then there was another type of, of escape, and that was the escape that was not organized on beforehand it was ad hoc I would say it was organized on the spot. It's like they were contacted by a friend, a family member, or someone who arranged an an escape. And uh, in in this chain of persons, they they were in contact with the resistance movement, and then came over to Sweden. And then the third type was those who were organized uh, on beforehand. And there is a famous escape uh, rescue called Carl Fredriksen's transport, and Carl Frederiksen is the name because our king was named Haakon, but his former name was Carl. He was a prince of Denmark, the brother of Frederick, so therefore they call Carl Fredriksen, the son of Frederick, and they say we drive for the king. And they called the transport Karl Fredriksens transport, but they did not start until after the Duna transport had left, it, saying the 28th of November 1942. But they rescued the 400 Jews. And then you have special actions like the Jew- Jewish orphanage home, or children's home, and that was a ses- successful rescue over to Sweden. So this is a very very brief overview. And I think I will take the rest in the questions. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much. We will turn to Finland. Dr. Ole Silvenoinen, researcher at the Center for Nordic Studies at the University of Helsinki, another contributor to the book. All the speakers we have heard during the conference are represented in the book, not necessarily with what has been said from the podium, but with each an essay on what, how uh, civil society reacted in their countries to the Holocaust. Please, Ola. Thank you for coming.
3: Thank you. Can you hear me? Good morning. By the time Finland officially joined the German war against the Soviet Union in late June 1941. Uh, the Finnish-Soviet border ranging from the Barents Sea to the outskirts of Leningrad came to consist of all one third of the initial length of the German-Soviet front. Yet it is strange that Finland has been for so long outside of the picture, in general works of, of, the, of the war and in works concerning the Holocaust. If you open a general work on these topics, you most often find maps from which Finland and this whole big geographic area has been almost totally excised. There's usually just a strip of southern Finland visible in, in those maps. Now, this post war silence has suited the Finns themselves rather well. There hasn't been much discussion about Finland's involvement in the Holocaust before, one might say, the 2000s. The international community has also made a service to the Finns by also remaining silent about uh, the Finnish case. Finland became, in the war, the only democracy to fight for Hitler, as the saying went. Yet it was anything but a predetermined German ally. The interwar policies of Finland aimed mostly at the containment of the Soviet Union through international cooperation, through participation in in the League of Nations, for example, And also, economical realities made Finland mostly Western-oriented in her policies. The Finnish economy was heavily driven by expert industries, forestry exports, whose main market was in, in Great Britain and in Western Europe and in the US. But what really made it for Finland, along with the rest of Eastern Europe, was the molotov ribbentrop Pact in August 1939. It served as a real, uh, or it served to define the geopolitical East Europe in a way that nobody involved in the secret additional protocol of the treaty could, could escape. Finland went on to join Germany in, in the war against the Soviet Union and as a result could also not remain innocent of the Holocaust, no matter how hard uh, this fact has been ignored in the post-war era. By the end of 1941, there were three groups of Jews in Finland, all of them in very different position. The first group, the largest one, was the Finnish Jews some 2,000 people a slightly larger community than than in Norway most of these people were Finnish citizens and the rest usually had been residing in Finland for for a longer time as Finnish citizens these people were treated just like any other Finns The, the males went on to serve in the armed forces and by 1941 also the women's auxiliary uh... Organization, the Lotta Swag, had been, uh, or they began accepting Jewish members, so also Jewish uh, females served uh, in the ranks of Lotta Swag. The Finnish Jews comprised a rather rare minority in an Axis army, uh, fighting also alongside the German comrades in arms in the Finnish fronts, having their own field synagogue in what was probably a rather unique phenomenon in, in any Axis army. But then there was another another group of Jews in Finland. These were mostly refugees from Central Europe who had arrived in Finland mainly following the 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 Anschluss of, of Austria nineteen thirty eight. These were a group of a few hundred people. The number kept fluctuating because people came and went. During the war, uh, that number continued to grow smaller because there were no new immigrants to Finland. These people resided in Finland under a status of aliens, meaning that... uh, they were under constant threat of deportation or or other measures by the authorities. The third group of Jews consisted of Soviet prisoners of war. In 1941, Finland took an unprecedented amount of prisoners of war, some some 7,000 people And uh, among them, there was also a considerable number of Soviet Jews. The fate of the prisoners of war in general was a very harsh one. The the mortality rose to close to 30%, which is a very staggeringly high number, one might say, uh, with the ethnic Russians suffering the worst. The Jews, Soviet Jewish prisoners of war, suffered somewhat less because the Finnish Jewish community was able to give them some help anyway the reaction of the civil society to the position and to the fate of of these and other people in similar positions were curtailed by several factors in the interwar period in general Most Finns probably saw Finland as an embattled state, a society which was not yet stable enough, a political system that was not yet stable enough to handle any large amounts of immigrants or refugees, and an economy that was not strong enough to deal out plenty for those in need. Finland had followed and formulated from the basis of, of sentiments like these an immigration policy that was very restricted and no development in Europe in the 1930s could alter that basic line. Furthermore, during the war there was press censorship meaning that the Finnish press could not report uh, openly on for example uh, features of German-Jewish policy or or, or similar things. What was perhaps decisive, nevertheless, was that, as a consequence of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, the Soviet Union attacked Finland in 1939. And as a result of that war, Finland had to cede large territories to the Soviet Union and resettle. Elsewhere in Finland, the roughly 400,000 refugees flowing from that area. So many in Finland thought that, thank you very much, we certainly have problems of our own enough, we don't need to consider the problems of, of other people. <laughs> You're looking at me. I didn't say okay. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, I thought I would,
3: but... <laughs> Um, to the question of what the Finnish public knew about uh, the details of German Jewish policy, the details of, of the Holocaust, is, 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 it's a rather difficult one to answer. Let us suffice to say that at least by October 1941 certain Finnish government authorities Uh, the the most important among them, the security police, knew that Germans were undertaking mass killings of Jews in German-occupied areas. There was a report submitted by one security police official to the security police leadership, which stated this in no uncertain terms. Moreover, ever since the start of of the joint war against the Soviet Union in June 1941 the Finnish security police had been operating in close cooperation with the German security police the Reichssicherheitshauptamt. Uh, as a result of this co- cooperation the Germans set up in, in northern Finland which was considered a German controlled theater of war a special unit of the German security police just like the Einsatzgruppen active elsewhere on the Eastern Front. This unit came to be known as Einsatzkommando Finland, Uh, sorry, Einsatzkommando Finland, of course, and uh, (coughs) its job was to engage in precisely similar tasks as, as these units elsewhere, namely to participate in the racial and ideological war of extermination against the Soviet Union. The Finnish security police knew all this and actually uh, aided and bettered the unit in its task. But after the war, there fell 60 years of silence on these matters. Resulting in a Finnish general public understanding of the Holocaust as something that happened somewhere far away to people we don't know. The Jewish community in Finland was also part of this, you might say. For them, mainly, the war was a positive experience in the way that it gave the Jewish community an opportunity to redeem themselves as proper Finns among their compatriots. If you go to the Jewish cemetery in Helsinki, see the war graves, you will get a a hint of this. Surely there was criticism from the side of the international Jewish community towards the Finnish Jews. They asked, how could you do that? How could you fight for Hitler? How could you prolong the war when we were suffering And I think the line basically adopted by the Finnish Jews was to answer that we didn't fight for Hitler, we fought against Stalin. There would be many more things to to tell and discuss, but uh, I'll stop at this and we'll continue. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much. Um, we will now turn to the last country of central, uh, the Central Nordic group. We've had Denmark in the south, Germany, Denmark yesterday, we've now had Norway, Finland and in between was Sweden. Receiving refugees from Denmark, receiving refugees from Norway, receiving some refugees from Finland and a country in the midst of an internal very complicated situation, I think. And this we will be told about by Dr. Karin christ Thank you.
4: Can you hear me? Yeah? Good. Uh, I have a little bit of a cold, so I hope this is going to work. Uh, it's only going to be 12 minutes, right? So. I think I'm going to manage. Okay. So, as we've heard, Sweden was a neutral country during the war. Unlike Norway, unlike Denmark, we were never occupied. Uh, unlike Finland, we didn't fight. There are things to be said uh, about the Swedish trade with Nazi Germany. There are things to be said about German sol- soldiers passing through Swedish territory. Uh, but I will leave that for now, aside for now. But the fact that Sweden was neutral uh, makes it legitimate to ask questions of what Sweden did and did not do for refugees. Swedish refugee policy was handled by the foreign office and an authority called Utländingsbyrån or the Foreigners Bureau. Uh, It was regulated in the Swedish law, but the law only stated that those who fled for political reasons should be given asylum and Sweden, as did other European countries at the time, uh, made sure Jewish refugees were not categorized as political refugees. There was nothing in the Swedish law that stated that Jewish refugees could or should be discriminated against. In fact, Sweden did allow Jewish refugees uh, permits to stay in Sweden if they could prove that they were uh, to continue to emigrate to another country, to a third country, um, this was about transit visas. Still, Sweden did discriminate Jewish refugees, and in my research, I've shown that we did so on racial grounds. Already since, the 19, since 1932, Swedish authorities marked files and applications from Jewish refugees with the letter M for Mosaic Confession. This was a religious de- definition from the beginning, but ever since a foreigner census in February of 1939, this M was instead defined in a racial way based on the Nuremberg laws. And this can be seen, for instance, if we look at uh, files, uh, including converted Jews, because they were also categorized and classified uh, with an M. Racial biology and anti-Semitism was part of the Swedish uh, mentality, but maybe more so in the 1920s. During the war, uh, it was seen as illegitimate, Ill- illegitimate and taboo to express antisemitic perceptions in Sweden. The authorities viewed these expressions as sort of a matter of fact. Uh, it was unbiased, it was an objective way of describing uh, Jews. They didn't think that what they said uh, was antisemitism. Just like the Danish case Sofia Lena described yesterday, anti-Semitism was seen as something coming from abroad, something un-Swedish. So the Swedish policy was restrictive at the beginning of the war, but this changed when the Swedes learned about the deportation of the Norwegian Jews in the fall of 1942. The Swedish press used self-censorship and censorship, just like the Danish case... But this event, the deportation of the Norwegian Jews, was not censored in Swedish press. It was instead published widely, and the Swedish opinion was very upset about this. The Norwegian Jews were seen as a fellow people, Broderfolk, just like us, just like the Swedes. So by the time of the flight of the Danish Jews in October of 1943, the situation was completely different. The Swedish government openly declared that anyone who would manage to cross the sound would be accepted in Sweden. But we did not send boats to Denmark to pick up refugees. And it is true that everyone who was accepted in Sweden, but what about those underlying antisemitic perceptions? What about that underlying mentality? What about the marking with the M uh, in files and minutes? The interesting thing is that even, th- even though the policy, the practice of uh, the discrimination changed, uh, these practices uh, and ideas remained. Swedish authorities continued to categorize and classify people as Jews or non-Jews. Even converted Jews were categorized in a racial manner as half-Jews, for instance. And this was done um, with the uh, Danish Jews who fled to Sweden. Um, there were those in civil society who protested against this. And there were, of course, newspapers who published stories about it. What, uh, and when they did, the, um, the authorities decided to stop publishing statistics showing uh, numbers of Jews and non-Jews. This was published up until uh, August of 1943 uh, in, in the public in Sweden. But when these protests came about, they instead said, no, we don't really have these figures. We can't really say how many are Jews and are not Jews anymore, so we're gonna stop publish this. So they, but they kept it for their own records. They uh, continued to know how many uh, of the refugees could be categorized as Jews or non-Jews. They just kept it out of the public eye. So how should we view the Swedish response to the Holocaust today? On the one hand, Sweden has been described as the good Sweden. Uh, We know all all here know about the heroes such as Ralph Wallenberg and what he did in Hungary, in Budapest, and about Folke Bernadotte and the white buses, the Red Cross, uh, mission um, picking up uh, Norwegian and Danish um, prisoners in concentration camps uh, in Germany, and eventually also Jewish um, refugees. And it is true that it was a shift in practice from discrimination to a large-scale reception. And at the same time, these anti-Semitic perceptions prevailed. Therefore, I have tried to characterize the Swedish policy as ambivalent and I've described it as John's faced, as a double faced policy, which both had this large scale reception, but it also had these anti Semitic ideas still um, inspiring these uh, authorities, even though they they themselves would not describe this as anti Semitism. And because of this, I've tried to describe antisemitism as sort of more like a background noise. This was something going on in the Swedish society. It was sort of felt like, maybe not normal, but it was there, um, but it wasn't viewed as anti-Semitism. These perceptions weren't viewed as anti-Semitism. More like a matter-of-fact uh, statements, unbiased statements about Jews. And I think if we see uh, Anti Semitism uh, in this way today it makes sense in a way for how they could act like they did um, when it comes to these groups, but still have these uh, perceptions of this group. That was actually what I was about to say. <laughs> I super <keep it> short, but. <laughs> I could go on, but I thought i it short.
2: This was kind of unfair. I didn't make use of my two minute note. Yeah, did. <laughs> Thank you. Look, um, we will now turn into a conversation on what happened in your three countries. And um, in fact, I would like to, to start with the Swedish government. How is it argued in Sweden today? that Sweden uh, remained closed to refugees in the 30s and that Sweden suddenly decided to open its borders. We, d- we tried to d- do a collection of, of documents on, on uh, October 43 and what surrounded the, these, this period and uh, I visited <laughs> the Swedish National Archive and what struck me was that there was a huge amount of applications during uh, the war and especially the first half of 1943 from Danes applying for visas to Sweden and uh, they were practically all refused and there was a dialogue between Stockholm and your embassy in Copenhagen on, on how uh, the argument should be. Um. How is this seen today?
5: Um, yeah,
4: um, There was never a total stop. The door was sort of open to Sweden. You could get a permit, uh, a visa to Sweden during this whole period. uh, It was just that they didn't allow everyone. So what I did in my research in my dissertation was that I compared all the applications from the ones that were categorized as Jews, marked with an M, with everybody else, which is a little bit complicated because everybody else would be anybody, uh, any foreigner trying to visit Sweden. But still, because the law didn't discriminate against this group, I thought it was relevant to to see if there were any differences. And there was differences. Um, You could get... um, your application could uh, you could get a yes <laughs> for your application, but uh, all too many were discriminated, and it was it was much harder for someone categorized as a Jew uh, to get a, a permit to Sweden. Also, I um, oversimplified a little bit, saying that there was a shift in the Swedish policy from uh, when the things happened in Norway, the events happened in Norway, till uh, in. In October of 1943, and it this is more like a, a very slow process. They are still saying no to a lot of people, like you mentioned in um, in August of, of 1943. Even though they knew what happened in in Norway, even though Swedish newspapers published. Um, already in October of 1942, an article called The Extermination of the Jews. At that point, it's not really clear what extermination meant, uh, but this was an article about what happened in Poland. Um, So the Swedish public, they couldn't know. If they wanted to know, they could know certain things. Uh, On the other hand, it's the difference between what you actually know and what you can understand uh, about this event. Uh, So... um, Today, I think um, there are, there's this sense in Sweden, we've been celebrating um, Raoul uh, of uh, last year, um, and this is, of course, a very important person in, in Swedish history. Although I think he might be more known in the US, maybe, <laughs> than in, in Sweden. Um, at the same time, there has also been an interest in trying to dig into our past, trying to say something about. What did Sweden have to do with the Holocaust? Uh, For a long time, Swedish historians didn't really think Sweden had anything to do with the Holocaust. There was a huge uh, project in the 1970s um, about Sweden during World War II. And there was one, there was like 20 dissertations coming out of this project. One of them dealt with the refugee policy. And it's, I think, symptomatic that he ends his time period in 1941 saying that, well, no Jews could leave Germany anyway, so I don't really have to deal with, you know. And that was sort of the sentiment of that time. This was published in 1973, so this was before the uh, the broadcasting of, of the TV series Holocaust, which we should think about today, I think. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. But that what was made an them, what made them
2: open the border at this specific moment and not two weeks before, or, yeah, or that matter yeah. two weeks later? Yeah, uh,
4: I think it was. Uh, I think it was things um, they knew, and it, they must have had conversations with uh, with the Danes also. They were they were communication all the time, and um, since Sweden was neutral, uh, there were also a lot of spies, and there were a lot of people. Um, residing in Sweden, so you could, the intelligence was pretty good uh, there too. Um, I'm not sure what exactly made them say. I think they they realized sort of more what was going to happen and then they decided, okay, we're gonna say yes. And I, I think in a way it was maybe not that harmful at that point for, for the Swedes either. And they didn't really do that much. They said, okay, anybody who could manage to get to Sweden, we'll, we will accept you. But th- we d- didn't really send any boats, or we didn't really do anything with a rescue. We sort of, um, we accepted. Um, I mean, that was important too, but still.
2: Uh, Irene, how was Sweden seen as a potential good neighbor receiving refugees?
0: Yeah. Now, that is for sure. uh, It was the good neighbour, but at the same time, uh, people who came over the border after the escape, some, some of them were met with individual Swedes who were Nazis. The local policeman might be of any kind of person, and there are um, there are examples that that they uh, the local com, uh, policeman tried to convince a Jewish family for the whole night that it was not any dangerous in Norway. They should go back. <laughs> that, But what I wanted to say also in connection to what Karin just said is that, uh, as I said, the the biggest transport to Auschwitz was the 26th of November 1942. The 27th of November 1942, there came an invitation from the Swedes, meaning the day after. uh, Invite is saying that any Norwegian or any Jew in Norway who had any connection with Sweden meaning Swedish passport or had been Swede before marriage or something like that, was invited into the country. But in a way, it, it was, was too it late.
2: only a few days later. Yeah, but wow. that is, I mean, you know, that's why I question. It They didn't see, uh,
0: how can you foresee such a thing? I mean, we haven't addressed that. How can you imagine in your mind uh, that a nation like germany ha- ha- made industry of killing
2: well i think it's uh, it's not as easy as that because i think we can see from the applications that the people targeted for potential deportation had a sense that this might okay. prove extremely dangerous yes. that's why they applied yes so right. it's it's i i don't find it possible to say how could anyone foresee
0: but it no, I agree that it's not the answer, but it plays into the whole picture. <clears throat> because in Norway there were people who who escaped 9th of April or tenth of April to Sweden. And then they stayed there for a while and nothing happened. So they went back. Those who Uh, however, stayed in Sweden, when those who were refugees from middle Europe, like the Czech or from Germany or from Vienna or from Austria, they had no connection in Norway, so for them to stay in Sweden or Norway didn't matter. But for those who had houses and work and family and friends in Norway, they went back when they saw that nothing happened. And then daily life went on. They married, and they children were born, and all these things happened in
6: everyday life. Yep.
2: And but can I ask you, uh, yep. when researchers and media look into this matter today, is it seen as embarrassing that the borders were opened a week too late? Yes, <coughs> of course. Yes, of course, and uh, of course a lot could be done.
0: Uh, a lot could be done by many, and. I mean, I expect someone of you to ask a question about the Norwegian, uh, how come that the Norwegian resistance movement, not as such, targeted the Jews as a group to help?
2: I would like to ask that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh,
0: okay, then I, I, and because then I couldn't say it from there to take all my time. But the thing is, the Jews in Norway were not allowed through the, the, the Norwegian uh, it was under Denmark and Sweden and they got uh, their uh, constitution in 1814 in the constitution, the second amendment it says that Jews are, are not allowed into the country 1814 which was different from Denmark I mean they had been together with Denmark why couldn't they learn? but that's it and then that was uh, the constitution until 1851 It was changed, Jews were allowed into the country and people foresee that there were a huge amount of Jews on the outside of waiting with boats to occupy in in Norway. What really happened was that 25 Jews from Germany came between the years 1851 till 1875. And they didn't even stay, because they just just looked if there were any kind of way to make better business. In Norway, if it was a good country and it wasn't, so they left. <laughs> and so, the, the really immigration to Norway started at the end of 1800, beginning of 1900, and the most came around 1905. Meaning that in 19, we're talking about this period, they have been in the country for a short while, there were few, even though they lived in 64 different communes, not only Oslo and Trondheim, as we like to think. But still, people didn't know the Jews, They were always been very few, not been very recognizable in newspapers and so on, so they didn't think about them. I think that is the honest question. And, but the, the, the question is that the resistance movement don't tell that. The, the, uh, just after the Donav had left, The resistance movement's newspaper, they had their uh, newspapers or their newsletters, they said that there has been arrest of the Jews in Norway and it's terrible. But it was too late. But I have to stress (laughs) that there were people from the resistance. I mean, resistance wasn't kind of an organisation you, you entered and you get the membership and things like that. You went in and out and you did things and you were connected. There are people who worked actively in the resistance with the escape of the Jews. But as such, the resistance movements still target the Jews. And there are the, and I think it is, together with the question that was yesterday about the Jews the Danes are they part of the we? In Norway, the answer is no. At this point, the Jews were not part of the Norwegian we. However, for the Jews themselves, they saw themselves as part of the we. They, saw, they were very proud of the Norwegian citizenship. And when I interviewed people, I mean, uh, those who came back from Auschwitz, they talked about Norway. Norway was the hope. Norway, they talked about Norway with pride and they made an effort not to have the, implica- the, the view that the guards in the camps had of them because then they were just numbers. They were persons, they were Norwegian, and when they come back they will know, They were looking for Norwegian food. They were looking for eating bre- light bread with butter and strawberry jam, summer food. Not gefilte fish or anything Jewish food. It was the Norwe- so, the Norwegian identification was very, so it's the differ- discrepancy between how the Norwegian Jews saw themselves and how the Norwegian non-Jews saw the Jews. Yeah.
2: We will turn to Finland in a moment, but, Kain, you had a...
4: Yeah, one? I just wanted to make a short comment on, uh, is it embarrassing for us today what the authorities uh, did or did not do at that time, um, and uh, whether Jews were actually part of the we. Um, I think we should remember that it wasn't really the Nazis that invented the idea of the Jewish question or uh, the Jewish problem. This was something that was part of European mentality uh, before, and the, the Nazis used this idea. Um, this was part of Sweden, of, of Swedish ideas as well, and, and Sweden didn't really view itself as a country of immigration. Uh, this was after the big emigrations to, uh, to America, for instance. So this was something, these were sentiments that, that were still very active in, in Sweden. We didn't see ourselves as a country of, of immigration. So uh, when this question was posed, um, what should, what should the, uh, the Germans do with the Jews, uh, none of the European countries were really interested in taking in Jews. We should remember that, and they weren't really, in Sweden. They weren't really um, worried about assimilated Jews in Germany or in Austria, for instance. They were worried about Eastern European Jews. Hmm. They were worried about the Polish Jews, which were they were quite a few. Um, and so um, when they were reluctant to say yes to, to German uh, Jews, for instance, it had to do with this idea that maybe we will have to accept everyone. And also if Sweden would have, for instance, categorized Jews as political refugees or eligible for that category, Sweden would have been the only country in Europe with this definition, and everybody would have tried to, to escape to Sweden. So, um, so they didn't really want to do anything else than all the other countries. They were just waiting, and so I mean, that's... countries
2: were waiting for each other. Sort of. That's what they're right. doing
4: during that Evian conference in nineteen thirty-eight. They're just waiting, look, see what what is what everybody else is going to do, and we don't really want to take any steps. Um, and so, yeah. So, um, and that's I mean, that's depressing in a way today, of course. Um, But you also have to take, you have to bear this into mind and you have to also realize what they knew at the time. And this is different depending on when we're looking at the situation. So that has to be taken into account too.
2: Look, maybe we should ask Ola what it was like in Finland. Finland, Were the Finnish Jews part Mm -hmm. of the we or or not? And after that, please uh, uh, give us your take on how Finland or Finnish people saw Sweden and the role of Sweden in between?
3: Yes, that's a bit more nuanced question than in, let's say, from what we've learned about the Danish case or the Norwegian case. Finnish Jews didn't have a very long history as a minority group in Finland. They had been allowed to enter Finland only in the latter part of the 19th century. And, and the commerce, where former soldiers of the Russian army who had ended their service and, and, and had been allowed to settle in Finland and that was the nucleus around which the, the Finnish-Jewish community grew it was moreover concentrated in the three largest cities Helsinki, Turku and Vipuri and uh, that they a very localized minority I wouldn't say that there would have been any widespread understanding among the Finns in general that that the Jews are also members of the nation you know the the vast majority of Finns actually probably didn't have any contact with the Jewish minority, they lived in other parts of the country and uh, the further to the right you moved in in political opinion, it it was clear that the Jews represented a foreign element that was a burden at best, and a security risk at worst. Mm-hmm. Especially during the wartime, to be closely monitored, and and this was prevalent among the security police, for example, <coughs> that, that every opportunity to get rid of these people, to make them go somewhere else, has to be seized. So, I think this was this was more 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 or less the view. The, me, there was among the especially among the Social Democratic Party there was. Uh, organizations that also lent aid to Jewish refugees in Finland. I think for them the the idea that they need to to help these people came from the 1930s struggle against fascism that you need to help the, the victims of fascism, yeah, and that could include also the Jewish refugees. And your second question was how Sweden. Was perceived as Finland looked to Sweden in in many ways, and, and immigration and refugee policy was also one of them. Finland was keen that Sweden should lead, take measures, and allow people in, and and, and so Finland could keep its own restrictive policy. Basically, during the wartime, it was I think it was very important for for Finnish civic society, that that Sweden remained a free enclave right next to Finland, that Swedish press monitored Finnish affairs, that that you discussed things in Sweden and through Swedish press the way you couldn't do in Finland. That was used time and time again. But especially in the refugee policy, Finland and Sweden went totally different paths. Look, I
2: would, we will open the floor in a second but I would like just to bring in one question first because I think uh, I have, I'm slightly sorry about the title of our country because <laughs> I know it's too late but it, it, it seems to me that we are looking at how we all reacted in like uh, October 43 and when it all happened and uh, Irene uh, you triggered this uh, by saying how could they know and this is what I would like to ask all three of you before opening the floor how could we know I think uh, reading back into media uh, diplomatic correspondence mm-hmm. intelligence it was very well known it could have been known what was in the offering we knew about we, states, societies everyone mm-hmm. knew about the new uh, Laws. we knew about the uh, Kristallnacht we knew concentration camps had uh, been established. We did have uh, the first uh, mass arrest of people being sent into camps. We uh, know that the uh, that the, the Jews were uh, desperately trying to get out of German-controlled areas. We knew they were desperately trying to 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 uh, be saved uh, from uh, Nazism. So how could, could it possibly be discussed in '43 or today, if they could know? Of course they could know. And in '43, at least I'd like to press one case. 42, a, a, a Polish underground gentleman called Jan Karski um, did a very uh, extraordinary travel. Uh, he visited the Warsaw ghetto, he got out, he got into the ghetto and out again. He he dressed up like um, someone else and had a job in one of the extermination camps. And he he took, actually, he took part in what was going on in this extermination camp. He got out of the camp. He went to London. He went to America. He told his story. And the reply he got in London and in Washington was We are not telling you that you are lying, but we find it hard to believe what you are telling. Then he published his book. First, a, a part of his report was read out on the uh, BBC World well, Service. People were listening to the BBC all sorts of places. Then he published his book his it was, I think, maybe Brightman would know. I think it was published in 400,000 copies. At, at, at least a big publication. So my, uh, at least for the question, I would claim it was possible to know. So I'm not trying to judge or blame the Nordic countries, but I think your countries could know as well. And we know from uh, at least one Swedish paper, but probably several, that they were aware of mass arrests, discriminations, uh, camps, uh, even mass killing several places, although Auschwitz was not a known place. But all these factors were known, so how come, uh, or when will we start discussing why no one acted in the thirties or the late thirties? Is that part of the discussion in your countries? Let's have one by one. Hmm. Finland.
3: Finland first, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it's the same question, why, why are we not acting upon Syria today? Yeah. yeah, but this we will ask tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> then we will ask, why didn't we yeah. act against Nazi Germany? Let me say that I, I quite agree with your analysis you presented there. By late 1930s it would have been obvious to anybody who would care to to follow things around that there were a lot of people who were persecuted and in need of immediate help, that's quite clear. During the war, I guess in the case of Finland, rather soon at least the government circles, the, the relevant authorities, they had all the necessary information to put the pieces together and, and uh, to come to the conclusion that the Germans that were killing people in masses. So, yeah. But it, that's is not history, an answer no. To, no. to the question no. why. No, no I, I, I,
2: I'm trying to, to get to the question is it a subject in Finland whether policies could have been different in the 30s while the, the information started piling yeah. up?
3: So much of fin- Finnish. Public discussion around the Holocaust still uh, circles around denial, around defense. That oh yeah, yeah, sure, this thing. but we couldn't have done anything, and uh, we were forced to, to act precisely the way we yeah. acted. There, and and you don't. There's no discussion. That that's not a discussion starter because it, you run into an immediate denial, and then that's yeah. it. Yeah. Um, Norway. Yeah, uh, I know.
0: There is a, uh, an article being worked on, and it's looked upon as very controversial, about how much the Norwegian government in London there's left for London, how much they knew, because there is a telegram from Bur- Baden in Switzerland, to the Norwegian government, and how much did they know? And... Um, it's, uh, that, that, so that is a question you know how much did the government know and how come that they didn't inform and when did they inform and so on and so forth but I think it, it is a difference between the camps and genocide uh, when you talk about this but of course uh, it's a difference between knowing and believing yeah. Yeah,
4: so um, as you say, yes
1: Kind. Yeah,
4: I would also uh, stress that I think there is a big difference in what they knew and what was published before the outbreak of the war, because a lot more was published before that in Germany as well and in the other countries as well. Um, whereas during, during, during the war um, there wasn't as much information coming out of uh, Germany, um, a lot of the countries were having some type of censorship or self-censorship censorship, as they did in, in Sweden and in Denmark. Uh, and that's important too. Um, but I do think um, I do think they knew quite a lot. On the other hand, um, this is about time, <laughs> as always. It, it depends on when you're asking and, and what you're asking about. And also, if you would actually... To actually decide to do something for for the Swedes, I think it took uh, it took the, the deportation of the Norwegian Jews for them to say that okay, this is too much. Uh, before before that, it was about um, European Jews. They were of course also seen as humans and and important persons, but they weren't really related to the Swedes in that sense. Um, so. So I think, in in some ways, I mean, and all Sweden did accept um, Jewish refugees, um, also from from uh, other countries than, than Norway and, and Denmark. But I think that I think that's important. And, but even when, after the idea of uh, the brother folk or the fellow people, even after those ideas that we should do something about the <coughs> Norwegian Jews, we should help the Danish Jews. Even afterwards, there were still, in some cases. Um, seen as, as Paula said, as a foreign element in in the nation, and that's the title of my dissertation as well. Because the Jews were were the whole time seen as something different. They couldn't really be assimilated. They were a problem in some diffuse way. You couldn't really uh, tell. Um, so I think it it depends. It depends on on persons, and maybe that's where you're <laughs> where you're heading. Uh, uh, this, this has also to do with individuals, if they were interested in, in doing something. Um, and for the Swedish case, the, the, um, the authorities could do, they had quite a bit of uh, um, uh, of action space, sort of. If they wanted to do something, they could. So the diplomats, they did negotiate and try to, to save uh, the Norwegian Jews. Um, it was too late obviously, when they were deported already, and it happened really quick, but they did try to do a lot, uh, these, those Swedish diplomats, and these were the same people that had uh, rejected applications from, from Jews before, so, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's difficult, and I think, I think it depends on when, when you're asking and, um, yeah, and okay. who you're asking. We? Yeah. I
2: hope we'll get back to it. You had a question
7: that's micro thank you very much uh, Kurt Basiner from the Bosnian chapter of Humanity and Action uh, I have two questions the first is how the networks of volunteers who went to fight in Finland during the winter war from the other Nordic countries yeah. they might have figured in what came after Did, were any of these people prominent in resistance networks uh, were any of these people prominent in rescue networks for, for Jews to get out of Norway or Denmark uh, to Sweden Or alternatively, did they figure in collaboration networks? I'm just just curious about what happened afterwards with these people who went over as volunteers. And the second question I have is, is, uh, what kind of pressure did Nazi Germany place on Stockholm, on Helsinki during the war, about the domestic Jewish question in Sweden, uh, accepting foreign Jews uh, under discriminatory practices, but still accepting them? And then uh, in Finland, uh, with its unorthodox, uh, having having Jews integrated into the military as part of Operation Barbarossa, as you said, which I had never heard of. What kind of pressures were applied, if any,
8: uh, to deal with that? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Kain? Um
4: Yeah. Um. I can't really tell any about anything about those who fought. Perfect. Maybe Ola can say something about those. I can't. I don't know enough about those. Um, what pressure did Nazi Germany put on Stockholm? Um, well, there were uh, there was an interest from both the German side and the Swedish side to keep uh, talking to each other, keep diplomatic relationship um, ship, uh, sort of more more or less um, uh, to nor- normal. Um. So they did. They did talk, and of course they did put pressure. I mean, they they actually transported um, over two million German soldiers uh, over Swedish soil during the war. Uh, in they were, these were unarmed, but they were um, transported in on the railway system uh, to fight in in Norway, or and later on to fight in uh, at the uh, beginning of Operation Barbarossa, and those who were transported. Uh, for that matter they were actually armed there was an armed division, German division uh, crossing Swedish soil uh, not something to be very proud of um, but that happened um, and Swedes I mean Sweden also traded for a long period of time in 1944 um, with the Germans uh, and that had to do with iron ore it had to do with ball bearings and um, and there were also from from German uh, corporate or, or companies. Um, they were they were trying to process this idea of aricering uh, in Swedish business or in business they had in Sweden as well. They weren't really very successful uh, in that matter, uh, actually. Um, but this the interesting thing is that the Swedish. Um, um, the, the minister of, of foreign affairs, he was very much against the whole idea of Aris, Arisirum, um in Sweden. So he actually spoke out loudly about this uh, in December of 1938. At the same time, therefore, um, the Swedish uh, authorities are trying to formulate these forms for the foreigner census, where they actually ask, uh, "Are your parents? Are either your parents?" Uh, Jews and they, they wanted them to add, to answer that question regardless of whether they were of the Mosaic Confession or not. So this is happening at the same time. These very different uh, or um, uh, things. Um, so yeah, of course there was pressure from Nazi Germany uh, towards uh, Stockholm. On the other hand, they didn't really have to I'm not sure if they would have had the manpower to actually occupy Sweden and in many ways they didn't really have to um, if you want to <laughs> be on that, uh, if you're in that temper, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, there were, of course, there were pressure and Swedes tried to, the Swedish government tried to, to keep Sweden out of the war. That was, and that has also been in the aftermath, the way that. Um, so,
2: did that require appeasement? Or?
4: That they thought it required appeasement yeah. to quite some extent, yes, yeah. definitely.
2: Uh, Olaf?
3: Yeah, shall I? I'll try to continue. Your first question about the volunteers is, I think, spot on. Unfortunately, the research to, to give it a really comprehensive answer is, hasn't been done yet. I, I don't think there's any analysis about the, the volunteer groups in, in, in the respective Nordic countries either. Correct me if I'm wrong, but decidedly not. What, what would you know? And we're planning to, to take this matter under research with my Norwegian colleagues. Soon you enough, know. but what we do know is that the if there is a character characteristic feature of all the volunteers who came to Finland to fight in the Winter War, it is that they are nationalist radicals. They are anti-communist members of European far-right and fascist organizations more than anything else. Mm. The Winter War attracts a considerable number of fascist luminaries from several European countries mm-hmm. and, and this, is, this is an important matter, but it, this, it's, it's not a systematic or it has no systematic basis. Uh, the other question was about German pressure. The, the Wanzer Conference in, in January 1942 also listed the Finnish Jews, meaning that they were clearly earmarked for destruction in due time. At the same time, however, in the very same conference, the the concern was voiced that two tough measures in the Nordic countries might have adverse effects, so that for the time being, Germany should avoid pressuring the Nordic governments. I take it this to to also include Finland in their rights because that was at least the policy line followed. Germany did not (coughs) pressure Finland openly to adopting harsher measures against the Jews for the time being there are claims by Felix Kerstin the, the Himmler's master and, and confidant that, the, that that when Himmler came to visit in Finland especially in the second visit in August 1942 that he would have taken up the issue and be refused but this is well basically hearsay based on nothing else than what, what Kerstin tells and what the, the then Finnish prime minister later told in his memoirs when he had clearly uh, motivation to pay himself mm. in, in a moral delight so can't be accepted as such
0: mm-hmm.
3: I think it was
2: Lamia oh, yeah. cool. thank
5: you so I'm Lamia yeah. also from Bosnian branch of uh, Humanity in Action uh, my question goes to Dr. Karin with. I, I have two questions in fact. One, uh, how many Jewish refugees uh, Sweden accepted in that period? And uh, second question, when we speak about uh, saving uh, Danish Jews uh, in su- such a short period in uh, October 1993, uh, what was their treatment basically when ta- thousands suddenly arrived to Sweden? <coughs> What was the, 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 the life they continue to live there? Why I am, am asking that? Uh, I happened, I knew a very nice man here in Denmark, one of those saints. Hmm. Uh, many Danish elderly people certainly know them. Uh, he was uh, a retired uh, professor of international law and the chair of Danish Helsinki Committee. Uh, it was Professor Erik Sisley. I used to co- cooperate with him uh, uh, regarding treatment of uh, Bosnian refugees here in Denmark. And he was, uh, he was disappointed by the way uh, Denmark treated those refugees, at least in the first three years. And he used to repeat many, many times, and I, I still can hear that. He said uh, uh, during his long life, uh, uh, he never had such a nice period. Uh, but being a refugee in, in Sweden, because he was a young student at that time, and uh, together with other students from Denmark, uh, they were immediately uh, became equal to Swedish students. They were treated exactly the same way, they were accepted at the university, he completed a number of years of his university study there, they were accommodated in uh, student dormitories with uh, other Swedish students, and they had a lot of money, he said. and, and uh, They had uh, really a lot of uh, pocket money or whatever. So he was recruiting, he was pricing a, a, a Swedish way how they treated uh, refugees at that time very well.
2: So, yeah,
5: Thank you. a comment? Yes. Um. How many Jewish
4: refugees Sweden accepted is uh, a difficult question. I did try to count as, as, uh, uh, as good as I could. Uh, the uh, um, What you can do as a historian is to try to follow the tracks of what's left. Uh, and what's left, uh, it would have been great if some of the minutes would have been left uh, in a better way than they are. Uh, what I've managed to do is to uh, follow um, almost 44,000 applications, and these were 11,000 of these were from Jews. Um, of them, I think we accepted uh, about a little bit more than half of the uh, okay. of the ones that uh, applied um, from the beginning when the policies were really restrictive. Uh, if you would try to sum it up. I'm not sure, really. Uh, I could. I, it's, it's difficult to give a, a proper figure. Uh, everybody's asking me that all the time. Uh, it, it's it's difficult. I'm I'm not really sure. I could could give you a, a proper figure. Um, so so I, I, I'm, I'm not going to try. I'm sorry um, about saving the Danish Jews, uh, and this is the description that's usually given that it was a very nice period of being a refugee in, in Sweden. Uh, and I'm not an expert in that either. If, if Is Bjark here today? No? He's not here today. Yeah, there are others here that are uh, uh, much more knowledgeable in that in that issue about how the the um, uh, Sweden did take care of of, uh, of the Danish Jews. So I can't really say that much about that either. I'm sorry, uh, but, but you I'm, had a
2: fairly nice description from Lamia. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and
4: also, I think I think you should uh, one should bear in mind that of course the the Danes were very uh, grateful. Um, and that's the description that usually comes up. Uh, I'm, I'm glad he had a, a good time with Sweden, <laughs> yeah. of course. Uh, well, we but I can't believe no, yeah, 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 We yeah. have a lot of people
2: now wanting to be part of it, so I think we were trying to turn it into shorter yeah. remarks, but <laughs> Irene, you had one.
0: Yeah, I, I, your question is uh, going in the uh, same direction as the comment Bent Melchior had in the church yesterday when he said we had a wonderful time, and that left me with some thoughts. Because it is different if you are in, as a refugee in Sweden, and you know that all those close to you, all those you love, your family and friends, are safe. Mm. Uh, and I, or if you are answer, really uncertain and worried in the deepest of your heart of what has happened to those. Um, So even though in Sweden you had housing, you had money yourself, you had work for some, you still worried. And I I will tell you, um, my mother said many times, I never said it to anyone, but I think it's appropriate to say it in this room, that she regretted so much that the 4th of May, when the Danes of 45, when the Danes were freed, uh, she did not congratulate the days, mm-hmm. and she said the reason was I couldn't because my heart was waiting for the answer to come. What had happened to our close ones? Mm-hmm. So I think this sentence shows that it, it, the worrying, and the, even though they they, they, didn't, they hoped in the to the end that it wasn't true what they had heard and so on and so forth, has to be included into the bread and housing and work.
2: So, uh, the first one is, uh, I think, Henrik, and now we will have short, nice questions, and <laughs> our panel will answer very shortly as <laughs> well.
6: Henrik research uh, researcher at the University. Uh, the Swedish um, journalist, he's reporting has documented the, the uh, depth of Swedish anti-Semitism before and during the early part of the war. Um, there were large demonstrations in uh, when there was a proposal for taking in 11 German-speaking doctors. Um, the question is, what was actually happened later on in academia? As far as I know, and as far as the district tells me, Nothing really done to them, no embarrassment to those professors who were outspoken anti-Semites. And a Norwegian journalist, Ragnar Fein, he wrote in uh, in his book, one of his books, about he was in resistance, the young man, and after the, the resistance fighters were released, bringing there was an incident in one of the smaller towns in, in Norway, where they were sent up by train, and the whole town came down to welcome them. Unfortunately, been, something was wrong with the communications, so there were no resistance fighters coming out of the train. And after five minutes, a little man stepped down on the platform with a little suitcase. And um, everybody looked. And after a while, a little boy said, It's a Jew, and that was a little grocer from that town who'd come back from Auschwitz, and they'd all come there with flags and music and things. No music, no flags, no welcome back. After a little while, the school headmaster went over and said hello to him, and everybody went back, and that was it. Thank you. Question about before the the, the, the Danish um, uh, in, in Sweden, how they felt as refugees. We mustn't forget that Denmark set up an office paid for by the Danish state mm. in Stockholm to aid the Danish Jews and to facilitate and to negotiate with the Swedes for transfer money. Norway, on the other hand, has still not come and said or done anything in restitution. I'd like to comment much.
0: Yeah, what did you say? <coughs> that Norway hasn't...
6: Yes, was the first country in the world to give restitution, it's, it's restitution money? Restitution compensation it, it um, were well
0: after when they came back and everything was set up to um, to, to deal with, with their own it's own. Just it, well uh, I't uh, what, what I know I mean Norway was the first country to give restitution money in 1996 it was late but it was still the first country to everyone being under anti-jewish uh, harassment Jews and non-jews and later the Prime Minister has asked for the excuse. But it is a lot into what you are saying and it can be add, added, and we know it. Yeah, okay. I think it was you. Do we have the microphone? I have some comments about...
1: Yeah, just a second. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Nadia Popaduk, Humanity in Action, senior fellow from Ukraine. My question goes to all speakers. Um, What is the civil society nowadays reaction to the Holocaust? Do you have some NGOs or special institutions uh, on teaching tolerance and Holocaust history? Or maybe do you have special courses at the universities for students, uh, for young people to be aware about the tragedy and uh, the role of your countries uh, in it? Thank you.
3: Thank you. Uh, Finland is this sense an Eastern European country sharing much of the memory policy patterns of the rest of Eastern Europe. The, the, this kind of memory culture is, I would say, still emerging. We do have nowadays several organizations, even university <coughs> courses, but they mostly deal with the Holocaust in the human rights context. Uh,
0: in Norway it's the same. all stud- Young students of 15 years old go to the Holocaust Center and and they visit the Jewish Museum, which is different, and uh, it's taught in the schools. And in this survey, I joined, uh, participated. It, it's unique. Uh, all of them say, answers say that you should learn more about Holocaust. But that, it doesn't mean that the numbers on the
4: anti-Semitic attitudes decrease that much. Karin? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in, in Sweden, we have um, both... Uh, um, at Uppsala University, um, a department dealing with research on these issues, and then we have the Living History Forum, where EVA is representing um, here in Sweden. So there are there are things done, and the Living History Forum is working more on a pedagogical. Um, issues uh, trying to reach uh, Swedish youth uh, and schools, dealing with different exhibitions uh, and such, uh, whereas um, the department at the university in Uppsala, um, where I wrote my dissertation, um, is dealing with research on, on these issues. Um, I'm not sure of the funding of the Living History Forum, but for the university it's, it's difficult, and this is, I think, a trend uh, now that um, after all these conference hel- conferences held in, in Stockholm by the former Swedish uh, Prime Minister Joran Pashon uh, and all these international efforts, the interest in the Holocaust is not as big anymore. Yeah. That, we have to say that. Yeah.
2: You had a comment. Yes, I Do have we, you need a microphone yes, coming mm-hmm. in. Thank you. Uh, it's uh, some comments. Or some and problem. you even need to speak yes. in the <laughs> microphone.
9: <laughs> <laughs> uh, My name is Evelin, I'm living here, and uh, when I was five years old, I was in those open boats from the beach we saw yesterday, and it all came back to me somehow. Mm. I was there for two years, and I could tell a little about the conditions as a refugee we we experienced in Sweden. Uh, From my point of view, it was all very well organized. It was fantastic, somehow. Well, the first night it was in no, it was in the, uh, the, the detention in, uh, in the police station. Mm. <laughs> uh, we we came in the night, and uh, uh, next uh, I remember a big um, gymnastic uh, area, you know, where there were mattresses and there were people all over the floor, men, women, children, and so on. Uh, in groups like families, I think. And uh, after a while, we came to a camp. And we were there for about a year, I think. It was a very nice camp because it had been at, not a hospital, but uh, a uh, uh, backup medicine mm-hmm. based yeah. in Bjorn uh, Horn about Uteboy. But in the since because I remembered it as. I remember the place as a child. Everything seems bigger and larger, and mm-hmm. the woods and so on. Uh, so I visited uh, some years ago and it was just a small place, I think, <laughs> but uh, very nice though. And we were there for about a year. Um, uh, uh, we, my family, it was my parents and myself. We uh, had a little small house, one, one room only. Uh, with another family in uh, in the garden maybe in the garden his house I don't know and uh, after a while well actually at first we had just one room in Helsingborg where my father tried to get a work it was allowed to work of course but it was difficult Uh, he um, got an infection and was ill and then we came to the camp well, my mother tried to work as well. She uh, got something with sewing uh, first. She had never done anything like that, but she sat there in some, and, and made that. And, well, after one year in the camp, there were about, I would say, maybe a 100 persons, maybe more. Uh, and after that, we got a flat in a small town, Arboga, in Sweden, and I went to school. Uh, I was only six years old, but my I think uh, my parents didn't want to uh, you know how to occupy me. So I, I went to school, Swedish school, and was actually not science, what do you call it? Uh, got friends, and everything was okay. Just my mother cried and cried and cried, because her parents in Germany didn't know what happened to them. Eventually she got a the message they uh, were killed in a concentration camp. But when she did know, I don't know. She tried to hide this anxiety from you, but a child to. so it was a an answer for you and also for you. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we had a very good period. And the problems came when we came back to North an mm-hmm.
2: But that's another Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Very nice. So uh, this is certainly <laughs> a, possi- a possibility that you answer yeah. the questions <laughs> and we will try to raise them. <laughs> 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 yes. You had one, yeah. I think. No, in the, on the first row? Solvay. So no? right. no? Okay. Solvay? Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. <coughs> I have several questions. I will boil it down. I'm sure I with the Davis Institute for
10: International Studies. Um, and My question would be for you, Irene um and uh, one of the things that has been remarkable about the, the scale of the interview were was the involvement of uh, non-resistance fighters right this whole organizing uh, whole network of people who that we call ordinary Danes who somehow got into this uh, uh, work of helping people to escape to Sweden, and then uh, didn't appear again in the resistance movement. Um, Some did, of course, but not all of them, by all means. Um, We have no count of how many people, how many Danes who helped Danish Jews and Jews residing in Denmark escaping to Sweden. We simply don't know many of the stories and accounts that we uh, aware of uh, people don't know the names of who them. And I was wondering now that you mentioned uh, the involvement um, of you know, the Norwegian <coughs> movement in the escape of the, of the Norwegian Jews, to what extent were,
0: let's call them ordinary Norwegians, involved in similar uh, actions? Uh, there are, of course, no numbers. But it is important to highlight this, and um, 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 it has been dealt upon a little bit here. Uh, the, when you ask a person who helped to, uh, a, a Jewish family to rescue, you ask, why did you do it? And they said, why? I just did it. And I think that goes into also the discussion yesterday about hero. A hero, they don't think themselves are heroes. They just did. what what decent people do. And that is not a hero kind of thing. That is an outside expression of that kind of deed. Um, I also have to mention that in order to get a person or a group over to Sweden, there were chains of people. And the chain was not made in beforehand. And it could be between 9 and 25 people in this chain when you look upon it from afterwards. So it's a lot of people involved. So we are talking about a lot of people I and mean, we try to get them uh, awarded in righteous among the nations also, but it's a big job. But it's important to talk about them. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Yes, um, microphone. Oh. No, yeah.
11: Peter Krzysztof from Humanity in Action uh, here in Denmark. This is a commercial. Uh, <laughs> referring to Nadja's um, information, why don't you take contact with us so you, we can ensure that uh, information is still passed on to next generations in your three countries, we'd be happy to assist you. But uh, that was not a question. <laughs> Anders, you talked about the uh, spread of information and the speed of it isn't it necessary to make a demographic analysis of the differences in in the countries we're talking about? I mean, the way I see Finland, you have a a very strong concentration of uh, academics uh, and higher incomes, too, in Helsinki, maybe Turku. You have in Oslo and Trondheim. And Denmark has tradition, being a very small country, but we have to live off a contact with the outer world, so we are used to getting information fast, but I think you, you need when, you need to analyze the demographic uh, differences to get an understanding on how fast the civil society reacts, and I haven't heard about that.
3: Una what do you say about it? <laughs> I cor- understand you correctly that you you mean the present situation. Well, even then, I think,
11: I think were the academics mean,
3: in, 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 in Helsinki, period? Yes, there were, certainly there were, but so you mean that...
2: Before they, the internet and television and all, how would people in northern Finland <laughs> and, and the countryside
11: yes, know what yeah, was going
3: on? That's my question. Yes, well, <laughs> I, guess, I guess from reading the newspapers. I don't. Uh, the academics in Finland, yes, there there's certainly were a number of professors, for example, but they, they used to be predominantly... Uh, German-minded, especially during the war, they, these people were certainly not funnels of, of, of Holocaust-related information to, to any part of the country. If that's what you
5: mean.
0: Well, it's a huge uh, question, but th- there has always been very close contact between Oslo and London. And but the thing is, how, what type, how, how was uh, the information censored? And it, in, even in Sweden, there was a radio station directly from London, uh, inform, informing the, the the refugees there. It was a German non-Nazi Moltke who came to Oslo in the spring of '42 after the Vansan, and he told uh, Norwegian Norwegians non-Jews. What was going on, and now it's a discussion if he told the, the leader of the Jewish community. This is not clear, so we are going into the details to see to see how that is passed on. It is very difficult uh, question, uh, and it could be answered extensively or short.
1: I do it short.
2: Great. Uh, Can I say something
4: super short? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there was a question before about the student, uh, the student meetings and the uh, anti-Semitism within academia, which has, is, uh, is related to this question. Uh, it's similar in Sweden as in Finland. A lot of, uh, Some of the professors were certainly influenced by their um, uh, contacts with Germany although it's difficult to say if they were pro-Nazi or pro-German, and there are probably uh, differences uh, in between. And there was a cooperation between uh, Swedish universities and uh, German universities throughout the war, um, actually. Uh, and But those student meetings in, in Uppsala um, they were Nazi organization meetings, and they were student meetings, and they were all protesting against these uh, doctors coming to Sweden. Uh-huh. Um, but they were, And they were anti-Semitic uh, expressions within this. But, but it's difficult to say anything about uh, whether these sentiments were also uh, part of the Swedish society, because we don't really have any, uh, any gallops from, from that opinion poll. So we, we, we don't really know.
2: Okay. There was a new interpretation of Super Short. Uh, But you and then you.
1: Yeah, this is a sort of a nonsense because in Sweden there was or is, I don't know, a publisher called Natur or Kultur, Nature and Culture. and There was a German-Jewish refugee, Fritz Bauer, who wrote a, a book about the concentration camps uh, in his, when he was in Sweden. And he had some photos of the camps. And the publisher told him, well, we won't bring these photos because nobody will believe your text if these photos are shown. Sure. That's one thing. And the other thing about uh, the Norwegian Please. constitution in Georgia. 1814. Uh, it's right, Jews were not allowed, but it was not only Jews, was it? It was also in Sweden. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. So there was. Uh,
0: the but book. it doesn't yeah, make it, we, it better.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> we, have, we have been offered a comment, not from the panel, but from Cicely, who is co editor of the book. And yeah. a researcher yeah. and also a co-organizer of the, the conference, at <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> uh,
10: And uh, um, having dealt very intensely uh, with, um, with the refugee policy, which I think I told a little bit about uh, during the first session uh, <coughs> yesterday, or the day before yesterday, tonight, uh, the refugee policy in Denmark and some of the questions related mainly to how the Sweden, Norway and Finland responded uh, respectively uh, to the refugees. And I think when you have the four Nordic countries, and this is a little bit also the point for this panel maybe, focusing on the Nordic countries, but also focusing on the differences uh, between these countries. And I think, I think it was always saying something about that Finland in the 1930s was a very young state and was extremely occupied with having an an economy established and also having a bureaucracy and administration uh, established. And I think that we can say also uh, uh, is a little bit the same case in Norway, a young nation uh, uh, very recently becoming independent from, from first Denmark and Sweden, and also being extremely occupied in establishing in itself as a, as a nation state. But then we have Sweden and Denmark, and I think uh, uh, when, we, when I did my book on the refugee policy, I did it very much within the perspective of the Establishing uh, or the uh, uh, yeah, the establishing of a national welfare state, and that is the same case in Sweden, where you have two very old administrations. Yeah, sorry, this is a common. I couldn't help, kind of trying to the, uh, kind of giving over all the
2: perspectives. No, no, I need to do this. Sorry, <laughs> I need to do
10: this. I think this is a very important point, making also explaining the way Sweden responded to the refugees and also the way Denmark responded to the refugees in the 1930s because both countries during the 1930s tried to avoid immigrants. And there's another very important and I'm looking at uh, Richard Biden over there. Oh, my God. European states. (laughs) European states during the 1930s were not used to be... Uh, countries receiving immigrants—they were used to be countries where people would leave from, mm-hmm. going to the new world. So the refugee problem was really a new problem for all European states, which is also reflected in the avian
2: Conference that like yes. so. <laughs> you mentioned, Karin. thank you. You are not allowed to no. s- speak on this. We have two more questions. One is Rie. One is the
9: Do we have a microphone? We have one. Yeah, my name is Rie, I'm a journalist, and happen to be married to that guy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That lucky guy. I
9: I, I have a very short question. In Denmark, the king, um, the king was a role model to the population. He um, did very little to show that he didn't feel or didn't have a great sympathy with the German occupiers, and he even wrote in his diary that if the Jews in Denmark were to wear the yellow star, he would he think that we all should wear one. I would like to know how the royal families in Norway, in Sweden, and up Finland since you don't have one. <laughs> and, and reacted and if they served as mm-hmm. role This is very
0: easy to answer. The the king family is became extremely popular after the or during the war and after the war because all the king's no, not willing to negotiate and go into the Nazi system and, ex- and the, he has a very high reputation the high, and he was unfriendly for many years with the Swedish, uh, his family, the royal family, because they accepted the troops through uh, Kiruna or to Narvik and so on. So the answer is very high reputation and he still has Kong
4: yeah, the situation is maybe a little bit different in in Sweden. I'm not a, a specific expert in that in that case, but um, there were, yeah, they weren't really um, protecting Sweden in that sense, the, the Swedish royal family. But it was different. Um, I'm not really sure I can say that much about that. Yeah. <laughs> no, but the Swedish <laughs>
0: family had very close contacts with Germany,
4: yeah. and, and Sibylla <laughs> was
0: yeah. German. I mean, uh, this is. Yeah. A bit yeah. a bit
2: yeah. We will jump on to the last question from Eva Maria Lassen, member of the Danish board. I'm sorry if it's turning into Danish board. Uh,
5: Thank
8: you. That's also a question for Irene. Um, you said that um, the Main re- re- reason that the resistance uh, didn't have a main focus on Jews was that they probably mm-hmm. looked at them as immigrants, as newcomers, was that correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, if I correct. Um then I was wondering: is that um, the only reason? No. And here I would like you, if you could, uh, uh, tell us a little bit about the pre-war. Um, a relationship between uh, the Jewish population and the non-Jewish population. I think for... Um, that's a very nice short <laughs> question. I think for um, people who, uh, who look at the different uh, democratic constitutions in the 19th century, it's very shocking that, Nor gim- that Norway actually have a democratic constitution that actually excludes Jews yes. and and and, and, and so, had the Norwegian overcome that?
0: Uh, yeah. Well, okay. Okay. To, well. to, I'm very glad you started with the first question about the immigrant because that is a misunderstanding. It was not that the uh, the uh, the, um, the resistance looked upon the Jews as the immigrants and because and they decided not to help them. That is not the case. The case is that the Jews were so few and they didn't know about them. It's like it, they had come for just some years ago, and they were not, so they, were, they didn't think about them. That is different from excluding someone because they are immigrants. It's absolutely not, not that. It, they had not been identified in a way as a group for, for the resistance so they were not there. They were not existing uh, at the point they should have thought about it. So, um, but this is a very delicate question. You might think that this is obvious. This is an extremely delicate question. Because the resistance movement also helped, uh, uh, in a way, winning the war. And they were the ones who ruled, in a way, directly indirectly after the war, Norway. So they have a very strong position. To criticize the resistance movements is uh, is not something you do every day. And uh, the thing is, the Norwegian Jews came mostly, as I said, in the beginning of 1900. They very quickly started to love this country. They it was very highly evaluated. The norm you can say to learn to speak fluently, to accept the Norwegian norms about. Outdoor life—they liked everything that Norwegian did. They did everything, and they changed names, got rid of the Visk or Ski or all these things, and they became Norwegian. And then it was a shock because then they were arrested, and they were not arrested by the Germans. They were arrested by the Norwegian.
2: You know, I was about to close now, but I dare not tell you the ghosting. So. Thank you for the exception.
5: It works. It, it works. Okay. Yeah. Um, I have a question about Sweden. I'm confounded by the statement, not this immaculate, that there was a kind of natural anti Semitism in Sweden, that it was just accepted. I differentiated from exterminationist, but nonetheless very powerful. It affected all sorts of things. Do Swedes today think about that? Um,
4: and I have like, um, just one minute to answer. So, um, yeah, I think in in I think every Swede today would say that there is no such thing as anti-Semitism in Sweden today. Whenever I'm trying to apply for funding for to um, look into anti-Semitism in a historical perspective, they're not really interested because there is no such thing as anti-Semitism in Sweden. Um, uh, and everybody says, oh, Islamophobia is a really big problem, sure, but there can be two things, you know, <laughs> we can study two things. So uh, I think uh, all these sentiments are, as we said before, they're un-Danish, they're un-Swedish, they're, some, they're coming from somewhere else. That's the, the perception in, in Sweden. I wouldn't agree with that, but uh, that, I think that's how uh, these issues are, are perceived in, in Sweden. This is not something we do, we're too good to do those things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, you
2: know, now I have several questions and I'm terribly sorry they would have to be uh, um, over lunch I uh, would like you to uh, have your book I hope you will accept the book from us it's <laughs> in, on the table outside Mother's uh, has, has an announcement but first I think we should thank Uda Thank <laughs> you